Yeah, and that makes me just a little bit emotional to even think about it. But it's so true. These folks in our area considered the dish to be their local place and had relationships with us as owners, with our staff, and they didn't want this pandemic to take us down. Welcome to Appalachian Startups, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Michelle Rodolini is part owner of The Dish Cafe, a hearty, healthy, and organic cooking restaurant located in Daniels, West Virginia. Her love for natural ingredient cooking at an early age eventually led to the decision of diving in on building a successful food business for Appalachians and tourists alike to consume. Hear her words on the ins and outs of the organic cooking business in rural America and gain some helpful tips on how to start even how to continue operations during a pandemic. Enjoy. So the dish is a farm-to-table concept. Um, It's actually um, non-GMO, natural, things that are good for your body. Um, I grew up with uh, parents who were kind of hippies and aunties who were hippies. They were always growing alfalfa seeds in the windowsill in a canning jar. And, you know, I used to ask my parents why we had brown pasta instead of white, you know, when every, all the other kids had regular white pasta. So I've always been really concerned with, you know, what I put into my body. And, um, and then I had a, some family members that had cancer and, you know, just talking to um, my mom's oncologist, I just remember him saying, you know, oh, it's the pesticides, you know, it's all the stuff that we put on our food to, you know, to grow our food, you know, in, in mass quantities and at a faster, you know, rate than what's natural. And so, you know, I just have grown up my whole life, you know, trying to pay attention to, to what went in. And at the same time, Um, I've been uh, fortunate enough to travel. I spent four years in college down in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston has over 100 restaurants on the peninsula. I supported myself through college by waiting tables at many of those great restaurants and just learned a lot of uh, really good recipes and have always had a love for food. Um, My husband, Mark, is also a foodie. He grew up in Pittsburgh with access to the Strip District where you could go and get fresh fish and uh, fresh meat. And so when we decided to move back to my hometown in Beckley, one of the first things that my husband noticed is that we had a lot of chain restaurants around, you know, not a lot of just um, mom and pop type restaurants where folks were cooking recipes, family recipes and making things from scratch. And so he sort of always complained about it a little bit. And um, and then we sold a, a family business. And so we had some capital. Um, And I said, hey, why don't we open a restaurant? And my husband looked at me and he said, you're crazy. You know how much work goes into a restaurant. So from there, you know, one thing just sort of led to another. But 
definitely knew the kind of food that we wanted to prepare with the most natural ingredients possible, um, organic whenever we could, or at least natural without antibiotics and hormones. So we proceeded to start to tell friends and family about this nutty idea we had. And whenever I was telling my aunties about it, they said, well, their first reaction probably was the same. A restaurant? Are you crazy? But after listening to what we wanted to do and I think realizing how much they had influenced me, they listened and I think the next day they they called and said, hey, if you're really serious about that, we would like to be a part of it. Oh, awesome. That's great. How long ago was that initial thought? So this would have been in 2012. Mm-hmm. When you, where did you grow up at? I grew up here in Beckley. Uh, how was that, you know, idea of healthy eating instilled at an early age? You know, because I know it was tough for me to even figure out what that was, you know, as I went through life, even though I'm a, I'm a type one diabetic. So it's very important to pay attention to what goes inside my body. But how, do, how was that instilled when you were young? So, like I said, my, my, uh, my mom and, you know, a lot of my, uh, her sisters um, and my dad, they were all kind of hippies, you know, just uh, really, you know, peace and love, not war. And they just ate really naturally. They, my mom used to just have all of these, you know, cookbooks of, about things coming from the earth. And um, they just, they grew as many vegetables as they could. Like I said, alfalfa sprouts in the window. Mm-hmm. We always had local honey and, and things of things like that. Um, wheat bread, wheat pasta. So it's just, it was a way of life for me. Did you have family recipes or certain things that were favorites of yours growing up? Absolutely. Uh, one of our family recipes that is on our brunch menu is biscuits and gravy. Um, my grandfather was in the Navy and, you know, one of the uh, most uh, efficient things to make for a bunch of sailors was biscuits and gravy. And so he had a, a recipe from his time in the Navy that I always grew up having. And so we have that on our brunch menu. Um, it's made with we it, we make the traditional gravy with sausage, but this one in particular that came from the Navy Navy is with uh, chip beef, and it's called SOS. And so anyone who is uh, uh, recognizes what SOS stands for, a lot of people have no idea, but it's it's chip chip beef gravy. Oh wow, really? Uh, that's amazing. I love biscuits and gravy. How do you make that in a healthy way? Like, how do you put together the healthiest form of biscuits and gravy? <laughs> So, you know, healthy isn't necessarily about fat. It's about using real butter instead of fake butter. It's about making it from scratch and not with, you know, not with fillers and preservatives. So, uh, you know, a lot of folks have grown up with with gravy that is a powder that comes out of a, uh, you know, a jar that sits on the shelf. And, you know, so um, we make ours with a, you know, a traditional roux, which is butter and flour. And um, so it's just made with natural natural ingredients. Mm-hmm. How do you present that like when you were starting up in a rural area and, you know, food deserts around, which not as much in, in where the dish is located, but, you know, uh, a lot of the rural counties are food deserts. How do you present that, you know, w- w- upon release? How do you, you know, explain that to the public? Right. That's a that's such a good question, because I remember being at a school event uh 
and standing around talking to some other parents. I think it was a field trip. And one of the kids, uh, dad had an MBA and he was from the Washington DC area. And I was telling him about the concept of the dish that we would be opening soon. And he looked at me and he said, so we live in a state with the highest rate of diabetes, one of the fattest states in the nation. And you are going to open a restaurant where everything is, uh, you know, all natural ingredients and organic. And you think that's going to go well. And I remember I was thinking, wow, this guy, like, you know, he's a pretty smart dude. You know what? Maybe we've maybe we've got this all wrong. But some of the things that really drove our decision to be located in a rural area like Daniel's was that uh, there's a whole economy out there. You know, lots of um, lots of things happening on that south end of the county. You've got Winter Place Ski Resort and you've got Glade Springs with three golf courses. You have Flat Top Lake. Uh, you have a lot of residential housing out there on Grandview Road and CNO Dam Road and 4-H Lake Road. So just a huge population of people that were always driving into Beckley for food, maybe, you know, beaver, but that's mostly fast food. So we really felt like positioning ourselves in a rural area, we would be a first choice, you know, because you could you could be at the dish in five or 10 minutes. If you go to Beckley, it would be 25 to 30 minutes. So I felt like that would um, get people to try us. Right. And check out the food. But I will tell you, the the first year opening, uh, we had a lot of people that said, we just don't even get you. We don't even understand what you're trying to do here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I think organic is synonymous with, you know, uh, bad tasting food, which is totally opposite to to what it can be. Did you find that there was a market for this? Like the people are like, oh, thank goodness. I've been waiting on this to open up here. Yeah. So the travelers from the ski resort and the golf course, um, they were all about it. You know, these kinds of food concepts were happening in the cities where they lived and they would walk in and say, wow, I didn't expect this. You're in a little strip mall and all of a sudden I could be in downtown Charlotte or in New York City. Like, this is cool. You have a good vibe and you are, you know, doing things. This is this is how we eat. Uh, you know, folks were already talking about GMOs and the dangers and, and how a lot of our, um, you know, genetic modified food our chemically um, created food is um, we're not able to metabolize that like we are natural food because our body doesn't recognize it as something that's going to provide energy you know the example I always use is you know bread is grown from grain and it has um, it has you know eggs and and milk and things that your body can use as energy so when you eat a piece of bread your body says oh great this is gonna you know enable me to think and and walk and talk. But if you ate a piece of cardboard, um, that doesn't provide energy to you. You know, that's why, I mean, if we could just eat anything and get energy from it, but we only get energy from food. So a lot of times if we eat something that's chemically created, what what happens to that? You know, what where does that go? And a lot of scientists believe that things we can't process for energy get stored in our cells, in our fat cells, and can later create disease and harm to our bodies. So so, um, so this was already sort of a buzz. You know, people already were starting to understand that things that aren't real food aren't good for you. And when they would eat our food, they would recognize 
how good they felt when they left the restaurant. You know, they didn't feel overstuffed and sick to their stomach. A lot of times the, you know, the fake butters and the fake sauces are the very thing that makes your tummy hurt a little bit after you leave a restaurant where you've maybe overeaten. You know, I always tell people you can overeat a little bit at the dish and you're still going to feel good because everything you've taken in is real food and it can be used for energy. I like the comparison to cardboard because it's essentially, you know, useless going in. Like, even though it may taste good, it's essentially useless to your body and, and, you know, most of the time harmful. So, um, what would you, uh, uh, what is your simple definition for someone who may not know? What is a GMO? So, uh, a GMO is a a genetically um, modified ingredient. It's it's something that, you know, in labs, you know, they found ways to um, create fillers and things that, you know, they can add to our fruit food products so that they can be produced more cheaply so that it's more profitable for the food processor that increases their profit margins. Um, and, you know, as you all, as we all know, if you're shopping in the grocery store and you're buying things that are natural, they're a lot more expensive because the ingredients all had to be, you know, grown and, and, um, you know, nothing, nothing occurred with that product in a lab that wasn't real. So mm-hmm. very good. Where do you find your ingredients? Like, where do you source everything from? So the the food suppliers that supply all the restaurants, they have many of the most of the ingredients that we use. Um, but if you are a restaurateur and you look at the price points for the natural ingredients, you know, you get a price list with everything that they have and and natural uh, natural ingredients and things that, you know, are organic are are at the top of the price list. So you know, they're easy to source. It's just that they're more expensive. Um, another uh, really interesting thing, if you're in the restaurant business that you come to know, is there are different grades of proteins, all proteins, chicken. Um, you know, you can get the most expensive chicken um, all the way down to a pretty cheap chicken that is more rubbery. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to identify whether it's, you know, uh, it's not chicken breast, obviously. Um, salmon there's six grades of salmon beef you know everyone understands that there's many different levels of steaks Um, you can get grass fed um, you can have grain fed so um, but the the natural ingredients are they're out there they're just more expensive right when you first started building that first business model did you what, did you have any experience in pricing food in, in the restaurant industry or did you have anyone help you with, with figuring out how much things cost? Yeah, so we didn't have a lot of experience in that, but we hired a manager who came from one of the most popular chain restaurants in the country. And he really helped us to understand, um, you know, the whole ordering process. And and we did some taste tests. You know, we had some of the suppliers come in and we would blind taste steaks and, and chicken and different ingredients. Um, and, you know, it was hard because we had, we, my aunties and... And my husband and I, you know, we we all had pretty um, extensive palates and we liked good food. And the guy that was helping us out was always shaking his head saying, you're not going to make any money this way. 
you know, it's great. It tastes good. You know, I, we get it, but you're not going to make any money this way. So, it, you know, it was a real struggle to, um, you know, to figure out how to have the right profit margins um, to be able to stay in business. You know, um, if you think about it, you know, on a on a ten dollar hamburger, you know, what's your profit margin really? You know, it's kind of like if you're selling a a box of this is what my aunt always says. If you're selling a box of popsicles and someone eats one, there went your profit margin. Um, you know, on a given night, if we have one of our steaks um, that's returned, you know, that takes away the profit margin on all the other steaks that we're probably selling that night. So, um, so we definitely learned a lot about that and, um, you know, in recipes, breaking down every ingredient. Um, and so we learned a lot and we had to uh, kind of go back and redo a lot. Um, at one point, I think that we had over 30 different cheeses in our different recipes. <laughs> and, um, you know, at, at some point we wised up and said, okay, well, maybe we can create the same recipes with 15 cheeses instead of 30. Right. Did you start with a smaller menu? We tried. There were some pretty specific things that we wanted to have on our menu. Um, one item that we wanted to have was a veggie burger. And my one of my aunties said, uh, what kind of beans do you want that veggie burger to be made from? Garbanzo beans, black beans. And I said, hmm, you know, the pretty much the most common veggie burger that people recognize as a black bean burger. But let's try the garbanzo beans as well. So we made a, uh, she created a black bean veggie burger that was sauteed and, um, and served. And then a garbanzo bean burger, which we decided to try in our fryer. So it ended up coming out like a falafel cake. And we had friends over, we tasted both. Nobody could ever decide which one they liked better because they were both so very unique. So we ended up putting both on there. And today, those are two of our most popular items. Um, in fact, we even sell the little falafel cakes. Some, some folks will just come and buy 12 or 15 of those to serve as an appetizer if they're having friends over. Right. Is your, is your menu kind of seasonal or are there things that don't sell really well that you retire or how does that work throughout the year? So a restaurant standard is that every 12 to 18 months you redo your menu and you slough off the bottom, uh, the 10% worst selling items and you move forward. Maybe you add a new item and see how it goes. So we have done that all along. Um, some things, you know, yes, some things are seasonable because obviously our farmers bring us a lot more fresh ingredients in these summer months. And we have microgreens and things like that, that we can toss on our salads or our, our pizzas. So, you know, in our, in, in the wintertime, our menu is a little more hearty with risotto and, you know, carbonara and, you know, different heavier dishes. But, um, one of the things that we did have to take off of our menu was our flatbreads. So we went from doing those seven days a week. Now we just do pizza on Wednesdays because each time, you know, a, a flatbread goes through the pizza oven, it's seven minutes to cook. So if you have four or five people order a flatbreads flatbread times that by seven minutes and, you know, it just slows 
getting food out to people and people don't like to wait, especially if they come in for lunch. So that was one of the things that we took off in in year two. Right. And you mentioned farmers. So you source local farmers? Yes. Um, what are some of those like? And are they just vegetables or is it all kind of does it vary? as far as the products go? Yeah, so, um, well, it varies. A lot of uh, vegetables. So we use several different farms in the area from both Fayette County, Raleigh County, Summers County. They bring us fresh tomatoes, lettuce, microgreens, squash, um, you know, just all of the different vegetables that we use, um, tomatoes. Um, but also our beef is uh, is locally sourced. So we use Swift Level. All of our burgers come from Swift Level Farms um, over in Greenbrier County. Awesome. So are there like different co-ops that farmers are involved in that you work with or... Um, there are, there are definitely, and more are emerging. Right. You got this plan together and you're, you know, you have your menu ready, you have all your items picked, you got your location ready. Was it nerve wracking that first day when you opened? Did you kind of be like, well, I don't know. I mean, we put it out on Facebook and we, you know, I don't know if you, did you contact news outlets and get the word out or how did, how did you market that first day? Yeah. If there was anything I could go back and do, and it would, it would be to change how we opened. Um, a lot of times now you hear, find out that businesses are doing soft openings. They open and they don't tell anyone because they just want customers to trickle in and they want to work out all of the kinks because, you know, businesses know that if you have too many people in, too many things could go wrong because if you, you know, everyone gets seated at one time, you know, it's just going to clog up your kitchen. So unfortunately, we we made the mistake and we decided to do two days of VIP seating. And we made a little invitation that said, you know, come help us work through the kinks of, um, uh, you know, opening a brand new restaurant. Um, we had two seatings each night and we invited all of our friends, business leaders, you know, to come out. And, um, and it was supposed to be, you know, to let us work through the kinks. But folks don't come in thinking that they're not coming in to help you out. And, you know, they came in with an expectation, you know, that everything was going to be perfect. And we literally just got slammed. You know, it took probably, you know, some people, it took an hour to get their food out. It was like the worst two days of our lives. Right. How honest were the reviews? Would they, I mean, you know, you want to hear them, but at the same time, you know, you get too many of them, you kind of get frustrated. And how did that go yeah everybody was really honest you know they said that once they got their food the food was amazing so no one really had issues with the food um as much as they did with the length of time but some of the things that we were doing were so different from from folks that they did have some criticism one is our tomato soup. Our tomato soup is just very, very pure. It is pureed tomatoes with a little bit of vegetable broth and a couple of secret spice ingredients, but it's just really pure. And a lot of people were very used to a creamy tomato tomato basil, like you would get out of your Campbell's soup can or, you know, at other restaurants. So, you know, a lot of folks were like, well, you know, they they were just 
um, didn't like our soup, but now our tomato soup is one of our most popular items. People just go nuts over it because it is different. And we serve it with a grilled cheese that's made with homemade um, bread. And Right. Well, the cool thing about that, I think a lot of that goes back to like people's childhood of like what they know as tomato soup but you know accepting this new version and appreciating it for what it is and it sounds amazing uh, that's also a cool part because they're building new memories with that food too so maybe that'll be a story that they'll tell one day or so it's it's really cool how how uh food affects the memory and the senses and stuff like that and what people are used to it sounds like a good learning process those first two days what did you kind of take notes like okay well we got to change this this and this is what we got to do to get quicker here and figure this out there how was that assessment yeah so our manager uh you know we all just were trying to not be critical of one another when you have several partners working together um you know so it's my husband and i and my two aunties so four you know four owners we had our uh you know our our uh, experienced manager and we're all trying not to be critical of decisions that we made but the real thing that we learned is we had way too many ingredients. So it was almost impossible to get our line set up. And so that's really when, you know, we decided to, you know, start looking. Could we, I mean, we had probably four different types of lettuce that we were using different lettuces for different um, uh, dishes. And, and we still do have probably three types of lettuce now you know we have our our burger lettuce we have a bib lettuce that we use for our lettuce wraps and then we have our mixed greens um, but i think at that time we probably had double the amounts of lettuces so and and the cheese example so those are some of the things we we had way too many ingredients and that's a, a common mistake in a just a, a local restaurant you know the chains have this dialed in it's why you know they're so successful and why they have such good profit margins because they understand that right well i worked at mcdonald's for a year and they had these guns that would give you the perfect amount of ketchup and mustard and it took literally a half a second so it, it's it's crazy to see on that end how you know to the to the millisecond they have everything processed but at the same time you know how did you juggle keeping the flavor but also perfecting the process like was there like a happy medium there you had to meet or yeah and a lot of times the flavor wasn't really affected but it was more like portion control like what you're saying so for instance we wanted our burgers to be hand patted you know we didn't want them to be like this perfect shape because it was swift level beef you know extremely expensive grass-fed beef um, but if uh, one particular employee was prepping that day his burgers were always bigger than the you know the guy that might be prepping in the afternoon so we finally did get a little circular burger cutter you know that um, and we got you know we said use the scale weigh the burger cut it with this so you know just some things like that but we never really um, changed the ingredients um, you know, the, the, any ingredient that we ever changed was to make an improvement. So for instance, um, a lot of our items were vegetarian, but they had egg in them to, as a, to hold them together. Like in the, in, um, in the example of the veggie burgers, the egg was what was holding that together. But then a vegan person could not eat the veggie burger because of the egg. So um, we learned that the juice of 
uh, bean juice that is in garbanzo beans um, could be used as a thickener and a and a to hold something together. So we were able to s- substitute out the egg, and um, and then we made a vegan burger. Oh, nice. Well, you mentioned the process of the patty. Like, what's the comparison from when you opened the end to now on like how many processes you've written for everything? Because I know with our business, like it's a constant thing to figure out a process for things. So like you may have this perfect idea for something that's in your head and you're like, of course they'll get it. But then you figure out like, I got to write this down literally in basic terms, step for step what to do because in this, and not only, you know, this is how we do it, but this is why we do it. So did you all develop different, a lot of different things for that, for, you know, different aspects of the restaurant? Yes, absolutely. We have a big binder that has all of our recipes with the specific directions and ingredients. And then we later added pictures so that new cooks coming on would be able to see what it's supposed to look like. And then, you know, we've always allowed our culinary team to be creative. So our baker, Sharon, she's amazing. She's been cooking her whole life. She's just like the matriarch of the family that makes the most amazing family dinners and, you know, whose family is like thanking God every day for being blessed with such a good cook. So Sharon comes to work for us and she's working, you know, she works probably probably three or four days a week. She bakes all of our breads. She made, she preps a lot of our food and she made suggestions and we adopted those suggestions, even just in the baking of the bread process. So I would say that probably everything has gone through its second or third iteration to evolve to where it is now. You know, some folks who have been regular patrons for a long time will say your food's never been better. Right. That's awesome. And that's that's great that you all have the mentality of accepting, you know, uh, constructive criticism, because, I mean, you know, Appalachian culture, obviously food's really important to it. So it's cool that it's intertwining with the actual restaurant and the processes involved in it. So I think that's really cool. That's one of the things that that's one way we're able to attract quality employees is because they get to have creativity. So a lot of folks that, you know, graduate from culinary school or they've just been cooking their whole life when they work at the chains, there's no, you know, veering from the process of that particular chain. I mean, everything. So it's, they say it just gets boring. You know, you do the same thing. It's just going through the motions. So they come to the dish and all of a sudden they're able to put their little creative touch on it and and really learn about cooking. Nothing's coming out of the freezer. Everything is being prepped during the day. And so they are, our culinary team says that it's just a great place to learn as well. Right. Well, I, and I feel it's, it's definitely an art form. Like, you know, growing up, you're like, yeah, food, I'll eat it. It tastes good. But now, you know, seeing, you know, different shows involving food and, and hearing, you know, the chef's words on why they do certain things. It's really a beautiful art form. And it's cool that you're building that creative outlet, you know, right there in Daniel's. So talking about like hiring, when did you know, like, OK, well, it's time to bring on more people. So, again, the manager that we hired had a very good understanding of all those processes. He had opened several restaurants over his career and had followed uh, tried and true processes. So he knew at what point you start um, interviewing and hiring. And he hired 
so many people, we're like, we do not need all of these people. This is like three times the amount of employees that we need. But that's where he was really able to help us because he knew that about a third or half of those employees would drop off after a couple of days because everybody gets excited about something new in town. Anytime a new business opens, everybody wants to work there. And, you know, and then the honeymoon's over quickly and you lose a lot of them. So he was very smart in helping us with that. Well, I'd imagine it's it's a tough job. So is the turnover, you know, somewhat high in the restaurant industry? It is, but it is not at local restaurants. So, you know, for folks like us or Dobra Zupra's, the Char Pasquale's, you know, Glade Springs, we all keep our staff uh, for a very long time because of that very thing. They have, you know, it's not a boring job. You know, they, they get to, um, you know, sort of make it, take ownership of it. And I think that's important as an employee. You know, you are more, uh, you're happier in your job when you have some some skin in the game and you own it a little bit. Do you kind of look for, uh, you and your manager look for like certain qualities in a person or, you know, experience? Is that important to you? Like, I know you have, you know, chefs that went through actual culinary school, right? Yeah, experience is very um, important, especially with front of the house staff. You know, everybody uh, wants a good, efficient bartender. Uh, you know, when folks come out to dinner, they don't want to wait for their glass of wine. Um, you know, they like a, a server that's going to get it right. Um, same thing goes in the kitchen. You know, you definitely want either line cooks that have a lot of experience um, or, you know, folks that have, you know, come out of school. We, when the culinary school um, was here with uh, Mountain State University, we would get a lot of students that would um, cook in our kitchen. Um, And so we're really excited that WVU Tech is bringing back that program because we think that'll, you know, be a great, um, uh, a great place for us to get some new recruits. Um, So yes, but we also hire a lot of young um, uh, high school kids that, you know, work in the kitchen as dishwashers and hosts and servers. And, um, you know, we just want someone that has a good, strong work, work ethic. That's really cool. So does that kind of develop a pipeline for you, like having a college that has a local culinary institute? How does that help you as a business owner to create this local pipeline? Absolutely. Uh, Not every college student has mom and dad paying for their education. So a lot of folks do have to put, you know, have a job so they can pay for some of their extra expenses. So we're able to uh, reach out to the director of that culinary program and say, look, you know, once classes start and you get to know your students, if you identify any that, you know, want to have a part time job, we're always willing to take them. When graduation time gets around, we also, communicate again that you know we're very open to uh you know accepting some new folks to the team that's great did you notice kind of a spike like a a certain point to where like whoa this is really something is is there a certain time that that hit or has it been kind of a gradual climb of like okay we have our regular customers we're known in the tourism industry you know this is working yeah it's it's so funny. It just follows the textbook business model. Uh, it's the five-year mark. 
they always say that if a business can survive five years, then that's the mark where you start to say, wow, this is working. And that was where it was for us. You know, the first five years, um, you know, we were we were really building that customer base and we were really getting our name out and having to do a lot of advertising. And at the five year mark, things really turned around for us. And so we're in year eight now. And, you know, we've had a we've we've persevered and um, and we're, you know, having a really good run right now. Since you mentioned perseverance, what has this past year been like during the pandemic? Like when it first occurred, did you kind of get together and brainstorm on what potentially could happen or what the new game plan was? Yeah. So I think this week is so significant for most people across the country because this is when we all started hearing this chatter that you know, the government might, you know, shut businesses down and send everyone home for quarantine. And I don't think that any of us could imagine what that would be like, because we'd never grew up in a time where you had a pandemic. You know, most of the uh, historical um, tragedies and, and things like that that have occurred in our lifetime happened out of our country, you know, other than 9-11, but even that didn't shut the country down. So I think, you know, everyone was saying, how can they do that? How can they just tell us we have to close our business? You know, does the government have a right to do that? And, you know, as the, and it was right around St. Patrick's Day and, you know, St. Patrick's Day was the very last day we were open and the governor came on and said, midnight tomorrow night, restaurants, um, you know, cannot operate with anyone in person to go curbside um, to go or delivery only. And so um, at that point, uh, people were starting to also, their fear was building. Like, this is kind of scary. If it's so serious that the government's going to shut every business down, um, maybe I don't want to be working. Maybe I should just go kind of quarantine in my home. And so of the employees, we just kind of talked to each one individually, some as a small group and said, you know, how are you feeling? Do you want to work? through the pandemic and be part of our team that's going to do the delivery and the to-go or not. And about half did not want to be, they were afraid. They were very afraid and they wanted to just hole up with their family. And the other half of the team said, you know, no, I'm in, I, I want to, you know, I want to be here. I want to do deliveries. I want to do curbside. So the next day, you know, we went out and tried to ground as many to-go boxes and things as we could because you'd, you know, you're not prepared to go from, you know, 10 or 15% of your business to go to 100%. And, um, you know, we weren't having customers in. So we just created a big assembly line in our dining room with all the to-go stuff. And uh, we got out there and put it on social media and let the public know, you know, that they could do curbside pickup or delivery. And, uh, you know, we, we moved forward in that way. But it was, you know, it wasn't, that easy because there were some employees um you know i remember someone calling they were staying at the cabins at pine haven and they had a very thick new york accent and they wanted delivery and i remember the person that was going to deliver it was like uh-oh i don't want to be around someone from new york isn't aren't all the new yorkers the ones that are bringing covid to west virginia you know is it okay if i just like put it at the end of the walkway and you know it, it was so just it was a strange time. Right. Yeah. So how many employees did you have then? Uh, up 25 to 30. So you had a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, the half that decided they wanted to be home. So that kind of took the pressure off you as far as like laying people off and how that worked. Um, what, what did that feel like having those conversations? You know, it was uh, it was definitely stressful um, and upsetting, but probably in the whole scheme of things, it was easier than maybe having to have that conversation with an employee under, you know, normal circumstances because this was happening everywhere. So, you know, folks expected it and they had already processed it. And there was already uh, information out in the news about how unemployment was going to work. And some folks knew that they were going to be able to collect unemployment. So, um, you know, they were making decisions in their mind whether they wanted to take their chance on unemployment or continue to earn a living. Yeah, and thankfully, uh, they got uh, additional benefits during that time. Um, was it kind of, which I, kn- I know like it was like $600 a week. Did you run into people being like, well, I think I may go home and kind of, you know, go on unemployment for a little bit because they can make more money? Or was that not even really an issue? I know that was an issue brought up by several business owners and uh, and I just haven't heard any accounts of people experiencing that huge issue because at first the folks who decided to stay felt like they had made the better decision and because and people were so generous because they knew that these workers were not making what they had once made when they could come in and serve people you know and and uh, people just traditionally don't tip as much on a to-go order as they do if they dine in so people were very generous and they were really over tipping just to make sure that our servers and bartenders could continue to make a living. So at first they felt they had made the superior decision, but then once the add-on benefit um, was announced, they felt like very jealous about the people who had decided to stay home because those folks ended up making more money than the ones who stayed did. And they weren't working. They were hanging out at home, just doing whatever, watching TV, being with their family. So it became uh, contentious. And as an employer, we sort of got caught in the middle because the ones that decided to stay and work, you know, in a way wanted someone to, you know, to blame. I mean, even my daughter, she, you know, she lives at home. She's a dependent and she was making good money doing deliveries and, you know, neighbors were, you know, tipping her great. But, you know, once in a while, um, she's 19, she'd be like, well, I should have just collected. I'm like, you had no right to collect. You live at home, you know? Right. Yeah. And it makes total sense. And these are the things that arose that people didn't really take into account. And there's so many aspects of the pandemic uh, that that are just really intriguing, especially in the restaurant industry, because you all, along with hair salons and and uh, uh, businesses that dealt regularly with the public, were most affected. Like restaurant industry was devastated across the country. Um, do you think that if you were to go through a pandemic in a community? that there's any other place better than Daniel's to go through it? Because I think the community really rallies behind local businesses here, especially when things like this has ha- has happened. And you mentioned people being generous, w- generous with tips. Did you kind of find that vibe throughout the whole thing? Yeah. And that makes me just a little bit emotional to even think about it. But it's so true. These folks in our area considered the dish to be their local 
place and had relationships with us as owners, with our staff, and they didn't want this pandemic to take us down. They were afraid that one of their favorite, most loved businesses would not survive it. And so many people called and asked if they could buy gift cards that they could use throughout the pandemic on their to-go food or use after the pandemic or use to to donate to um, people in need. And in that first week, we had several people who bought $500 to $1,000 worth of gift cards Wow! to make sure that we had some cash in the bank to pay our employees. That's amazing. And then those come in and what do you think? Like, wow, what do I do? I, I need to do something. Can I do something for, you know, how, how do you take that in of like absorbing what just happened? Yeah, it was, you know, very emotional. You know, you almost felt reluctant to take it, but then you realize the value of small businesses. They make up the fabric of a community. You know, why are people so attracted to West Virginia right now? Because they realize that they just live in a very homogenized area with a lot of of things that don't really have any personality to them. Um, You know, and once everyone had to go home and they weren't able to, you know, be out, um, they realized that they didn't really have what they thought they had. And the dish has that personality, as do a lot of our other small businesses here in West Virginia. And people really wanted to ensure that they stuck around. And I think people made a point to patronize local businesses before they did, you know, big corporate um, retailers and such. Mm-hmm. Did you develop a plan to be ready when they first did the 50% seating? Did you have kind of a game plan together of like, okay, well, when they do that, we're going to do this? Yeah, we decided early on, you know, enough people were uh, talking about what they were going to do in the restaurant business. And folks were saying every other table that would provide that was an easy way to calculate 50 percent. And it provided the proper social distancing. So and then when they announced that you could do outdoor seating, we we made a little plan for that. Um Actually, we we have a sidewalk and we can put four tables on our sidewalk, but we knew we were going to need more. So it was a sunny day and uh, my son is a bit of an artist and my daughter, you know, we all like to draw. And I said, hey, guys, let's go get some acrylic paints and let's paint some some of our parking spaces. We need to identify an area that's our outdoor seating. And he said, Mom, what are we going to paint? And I'm like. I don't know, sunshine, moon and stars, flowers, you know, let's just paint it because we have to designate this area and rope it off in order to comply with the ABC requirements to be able to serve outside. So on a Saturday, we uh, went and, and got all the supplies that we needed and we sat there all day and we just painted the sidewalk or painted the parking spaces, roped it off, put some tables. We had some community members that donated heaters and we, you know, at, at that point, we started with the 50% um, seating and we've rolled that way for what, 10 months? I mean, just two weeks ago, we finally went quickly to 75 and, and now to 100. But and it's it's odd for us still, you know, even the employees are reluctant to really seat everyone. You know, they still are like, really, should we really put someone there? <laughs> right. Yeah. And that reluctance is, you know, felt 
with every person in in some way do you did you find like when you all first started seating again like people were there or or people kind of like you know timid when they come in and don't really know what to do and kind of nervous or yeah they, they were you know they let us guide them but the difference was what the pandemic um showed people is patience and you know whereas before you've probably experienced this yourself if you go to a restaurant say you're at the beach they tell you it's 45 minute wait and you're with your family and you're all hungry and you look over and you see three open tables how do you react well why can't you seat us at that table well we can't seat you because you know it'll overwhelm the kitchen we're trying to keep everything kind of spaced out and and uh well we won't we don't care. We'll just, you know, we would just like to sit down and have some water while we wait. But the minute that somebody sits in a seat, they start watching their clock. And that's when they think that their dining experience starts. And they pay attention from the time they sit down until they finally get their food. So people became very patient during the pandemic. They were just happy to get one of those 50% seats. And they waited a lot longer than they would have ever waited before and so now even though we're opened back up to 100 percent, if we say we do have some tables open but we want to you know just keep it spaced out for social distancing you know folks are very very understanding i'm so glad you brought that up because that's kind of like a conspiracy theory in restaurants when you come in and you're like wait a minute that whole section's open so is it kind of because they build their staff based on their average, like what they think they're going to get. And then sometimes they're not able to have the capacity to to seat everyone. So is that kind of what it is? Well, it's just more that um, you could seat everyone because the seating part's not a problem. That's easy. But it's the, you know, it's the kitchen. It's just like it's if experience. you put... 20 orders in at one time it bottlenecks you know you want them to come in every minute or two minutes or three minutes and if you just seat everyone at one time a server can't wait on five tables at one time you know they can only get so it's just better you know yeah give them that onslaught of tickets hurts the experience in turn they may not come back but taking that extra care and when they're seated will give them a better experience ultimately they'll probably come back. So that's kind of what it boils down to. Yeah, and you build restaurants with bigger capacity and more seats so that you can stagger because when one's leaving, you set someone at a clean table, then you clean off the table that just left, then you seat someone at that table. So you need the extra tables to stagger it. Mm -hmm. And this is all blowing my mind. I could talk all day, but I got to kind of wind down. What would you say to someone who is like, man, I can make a really good cheeseburger and it's in high school right now. Like, I'm going to try and do this when I get out of high school. What would you tell them as, as far as like, you know, how much capital do they need to put their idea into fruition and what kind of qualities do they need as an entrepreneur to, you know, succeed? So I think that it, opening a restaurant is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. You have to have at least three, three to five years of money that you're willing to put into it. Uh, to think that you are going to make enough money uh, for it to pay for itself, it's just 
just not going to happen um, because too many, there's just too many variables. You know, you don't keep staff. Uh, maybe your food quality is not as good as you thought it was. Maybe your location's not great. It's a really tough business. I think the best thing is to work for others for a while and learn some of the tricks and uh, tricks of the trade and some of the industry um, gain that industry knowledge and then decide and and make your money and be at a comfortable place in your life and then try it out. Good deal. Um, and this is a extremely late question, but how'd you come up with the name? The Dish Cafe. So we wanted to be that place where everyone gathered, where you knew you would, you know, you might see a friend where students might come with their laptop and get a cookie and a hot chocolate. And, and, uh, so we thought, you know, maybe a little play on words, um, you know, you can come there and get the dish, you know, the scoop on what's going on. Um, and also you're going to get a great dish to eat. So uh, we we decided it was kind of a good play on words and, and chose it. But it was a struggle at first because everyone, you know, relates dish with the, the satellite uh, TV. So but we, we got over that. Very good. And what's the average uh, profit margin that local restaurants usually try to operate under? Um, you know, I think that the average is around um, 35 to 40%. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Um, and uh, last question. So you've been involved with the Beckley-Raleigh County uh, Chamber of Commerce president. Um, what have you noticed since your time working, you know, around businesses and with entrepreneurs, is there kind of like a usual personality for an entrepreneur in West Virginia? Do they kind of have like, which I know I do, like I have kind of a chip on my shoulder, like, oh, you, oh, you saying I can't do this? Well, I'm going to show you that I can. Is, is, is there kind of a mentality that goes across the board when it comes to successful entrepreneurs in West Virginia? Absolutely. I think that entrepreneurs are first of all, creative, you know, they, they, um, they think outside the box, you know, well, I think, you know, how can we do this? How can we make that happen? Um, they are not lazy. Absolutely not lazy. They can, you know, entrepreneurs are people that, you know, work round the clock. They go to bed making notes about what they're going to do the next day. They wake up, feet hit the ground and, you know, they're on it. Um, perseverance, um, you know, um, it's so funny because a girlfriend and I, we were talking yesterday and you could be a genius. You could be the smartest person in the world, but that's not going to guarantee your success. If you don't have that fire in your belly that makes you want to get up and just do it and be successful every day, that's, that's what it takes. You just, it's the fire in the belly. And I, th I think that uh, people who are just, don't look at it as a job, just look at it as living out there, you know, their passion, making, serving people, providing a, a good or service that they decided that the community wanted and that it makes them happy to be able to provide that. And they constantly look at how they can do it better. Michelle, your hard work and dedication to build a successful restaurant is inspiring. And I cannot wait until I can finally try the biscuits and gravy. Thank you for a rewarding conversation. You can find out more about the Dish Cafe by visiting and devouring literally everything on their menu in Daniels, West Virginia. Find them on Facebook and be sure to go to their website at dishcafewv.com.
startup.com. Appalachian Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.